Amen. If you're visiting with us this morning, uh, we as a congregation have been walking through the Gospel of Mark since the first Sunday that we met. We're about, I guess, three or four months in now, and we've made it halfway through the book. The rationale for going through the book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, is that it's going to force us to grapple with the text as they come at us. The implication of that is that some of these texts that we come to aren't going to be easy ones to understand. I dealt with that last week because I had to preach about the transfiguration, and I'm still not quite sure what the transfiguration is all about. The other, the other side of that implication is that sometimes you actually come across a text that has really ministered to you over the years. And that's the case for us today. Today in chapter 9, beginning in verse 14, we come to a story that's meant a lot to me personally. It's a story about a desperate father who comes to Jesus for help. Specifically, it's about a desperate father's plea for more faith. One of, the th- one of the things that's, uh, that, that I've dealt with in my Christian walk over the years is, is that faith has not always come easy for me. Sometimes I've, I've struggled with doubt. Much to, uh, much to my dismay, many times, it's not something I enjoy. I'm not looking for replacements for my Christianity, but it's come hard. First time that was true for me was in college. I think it was my third or fourth year in college, and I had, I had already pretty much decided I wanted to do ministry. I was a religion major. I was studying all the things that I loved, studying biblical studies and theology and church history. I was surrounded by people who understood the gospel in the same way that I did. I was in what you would say is the perfect environment for faith to to grow and flourish, and that was true for me in, in many ways. But I also have been wired up sort of skeptically since I, I mean, as long as I can remember. My mother tells me that I, she thought I'd be a lawyer from the time I was two or three years old because I could, I could even argue with her at that point. In the first couple of years in my college experience, my skeptical bent was just turned towards sort of intramural arguments. It was about picking holes in different arguments about what this text might mean. Or, or different theological camps about the nature of salvation. Those were where I would turn my skeptical attention. But about year three or four, I began to read more about other religions. And I began to see that they made similar claims to justify their beliefs that I was making to justify mine. I began to wonder, why is it exactly that I'm so convinced that this, is, this religion is distinctive? I remember discovering different uh, philosophers for the first time that, that, that sort of lights were coming on in my head. And, and the effect that it had on me was to turn me upside down and to, to leave me wondering what is the reason that I, that I believe. There's a long story in there that I'm not going to bore you with today, except that I think I started that, that year looking for some sort of silver bullet that was going to take away every doubt that I could ever have. And I've been looking for that for about eight or ten years now, and I haven't found it yet. And in the absence of that silver bullet, what has really ministered to me over the years, especially in times where I've struggled with doubt, is this father's prayer to Jesus. He's met with a need that, that he can't meet. And he's told by Jesus that all he needs to do is believe and that everything is possible for those who believe. And that seems to be just the very thing that this father couldn't conjure up for himself. Belief. That was what he really struggled with. 
And his cry, the centerpiece of the story we're looking at this morning, is the cry, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. In other words, I can't even believe for myself. That's the, that's the essence of this man's cry, and it's one that I've cried out to God time and again. And chances are, there's a number of you who've had similar struggles at one point or another. Almost certainly, if you're here today, all of you have found yourself faced with the question of belief in Jesus. The decision point. How are you going to respond to the things that you've been told about him? And chances are, in one way or another, even if you're a long-time believer, you've struggled with some sort of lack in your faith. Whatever your background with faith, whatever you find yourself today, this story is for you. It's meant for you. That's why Mark put it here. Throughout Mark's gospel so far, what we've seen is Mark addressing several big questions. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? And what does that require of you? And the first two questions have received most of the emphasis so far. He's shown us that Jesus is God. The Son of God come here with remarkable power to accomplish his will. And and his will, what he's come to accomplish, is the salvation of God's people. That's something we've just been told is going to happen through his death. More on that is still to come. But it's that third question that we've seen answers scattered around so far. And it's that third question that we get hit with today. What does that require of you? Jesus said in the very first chapter of this gospel that what he requires is that you repent and believe the gospel. That leaves us with the question, what does it look like to believe in the gospel? His power, in other words, and his purpose to save is only good news for you if there's a way for you to get in on it. It's not just good news that Jesus has power. It's not even just good news that he came to use that power to save people. It's only good news if you know what it takes for him to save you. That's what this story is about. It's one of the most clear explanations of what it looks like to believe in the gospel. It's another miracle story, and it's a miracle that's reported in both Matthew and Luke. But in this case, in Mark's telling of the story, one of the only times that Mark gives more detail than either Matthew or Luke Mark's story is not just about the miracle. The miracle is an occasion for a discussion of faith. Luke and Matthew leave this out. This faith question is what matters to Mark. Let me read the passage, and then I'll set the stage for what's coming. Today we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. And if you wouldn't mind, once you've found that, will you stand with me in honor of God's word as we read? I'll also say if you didn't have a chance to bring a Bible with you, if you don't own one, we've got some at the, the center aisle on both sides. If you want to flag somebody down, they'll pass one to you. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you just to take that with you and, and, and read it. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. This is the word of the Lord. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? 
How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Here's the situation. Jesus and his closest followers have just witnessed the remarkable event of the transfiguration, an unprecedented event in the life of Jesus. It's reported in the other Gospels. Now they're headed down the mountain to meet up with the others again. And and when they get there, they find him surrounded by a crowd of people and in the midst of some sort of heated argument. When Jesus asks them what's going on, a single desperate voice emerges from the crowd. It's the voice of a father who's brought his son for healing because he doesn't know what else to do. Some sort of spirit, some mysterious evil force inhabits this boy, takes complete control of his son at will. It removes the ability of this boy to communicate, taking away his speech and his ability to hear. What's worse, it takes complete control of his body and it convulses him, it throws him down. the, The image of his teeth just grinding and left rigid. It attacks him, in other words. So here's Jesus, confronted with a debilitated child and the helplessness of a father who can't do anything about it, who's helpless and powerless to do what becomes most natural to him as a father, to protect his child. What parent couldn't sympathize with this plight? Now, this, this is a plight we've seen before in Mark time and again, but, but this story is unique. This story turns on one central problem. He brought his son for healing, but the disciples weren't able to cast it out. That's what sets the stage for this account. It sets the stage for considering the nature of belief and unbelief. The problem of the disciples' inability to heal the child, in other words, traces back not to a deficiency in power, but to a deficiency in their faith. The problem, in other words, is unbelief. This story illustrates what we know from our own experience all too well, that unbelief comes in many forms and it comes from many places. So first, what we want to do is is unpack the details of this story to try to get at the character of unbelief, the nature of this problem. Let's look at it one at a time, each of the main characters. First, the disciples' problem. What did unbelief look like for the disciples? This is one of the trickiest issues in this passage. It's tricky because you've got to figure out exactly why the disciples weren't able to cast out this demon. They had been casting out demons before. 
we've got these passages we've covered earlier where Jesus commissions his disciples to go do the things he'd been doing, like healing people and, and casting out evil spirits. And they'd been successful. They'd come back to him with these amazing reports of what they had seen. But here, they're not able to. The question of why they're not able to is raised here at the very beginning of the story, and then they come back to it at the very end of the story, showing that it's at the center of what's going on here somewhere, in some way. So, for a couple reasons, it seems to me the disciples failed here where they'd been successful many times before because they fell back on self-reliance rather than trusting in the power of God. Now, here's why I think that that's what's happened here. A couple reasons. First... Jesus responds to them. Immediately when, he, when, he, when, the, when the father tells him that the disciples weren't able to cast out this demon, his response is, Oh, faithless generation. He attributes the problem to a lack of faith. Now, I'll admit, generation is a big label, especially to apply to a handful of disciples. It seems like what he's saying here, though, is that these disciples are part of the faithless generation. They, in spite of all the access that they'd had, in spite of all that they had seen Jesus do, they remained just like everyone else in the generation that they lived among, faithless. They and their failure, even if the label is bigger than them, their failure seems to be the inspiration for Jesus' point. The big problem is that they're not distinguishable from the generation that's around them. This is something we've seen from the disciples over and over. Jesus has been fed up with them numerous times by now. Because no matter how many times they see him heal the sick or feed 5,000 people, they're still worried about where their bread is coming from. Their faith is not what it should be. And that seems to be the case again here. I think that's what Jesus means, in other words, when his response is, O faithless generation. Then there's the conversation that he has with them at the end of this account. If you skip forward to the very last couple of verses, 28 and 29, the disciples ask him, why couldn't we cast out this demon? And his response is that this kind, that's the way it's translated here, this kind can only be cast out through prayer. Now that's a strange phrase because as it's translated, it seems like he's saying there's a difference in kinds of demons as if some are easier to cast out than other ones. Some of them you have to pray. Other ones you can just speak to them and, they, and they're gone. That's what it seemed like on the surface anyway. That's how I read it, on the surface. But that doesn't seem right. Because nowhere else in Mark or in any other New Testament book does Jesus make any kind of distinction between spirits. They're all evil spirits. And nowhere else, either here or anywhere else, is Jesus having any kind of different interaction with them. In every case, he speaks to them and they hear his voice. He doesn't have some sort of special incantation that he uses here that he doesn't use elsewhere, as if there were different kinds. It makes more sense, I think, to take this word. It's a word uh, that in its original is genos as a category that refers to all demons. See, that word can be used... In, in, in several different ways, but one of, the, one of the ways it can be used is just almost like species. You've got cows are a genos, horses are a genos, dogs are a genos, cats are a genos, humans are one, maybe even men versus women are different categories. In this case, it seems what would fit better is that demons as a category, as a genos, can only be cast out through prayer. That makes sense. If, if that's Mark's point. And it would reinforce the idea that what was wrong with the disciples in this case, what happened, that the reason that they couldn't cast out this demon was not that he was too strong for them, 
but that they stop relying on prayer. Prayer, ultimately, is nothing but an acknowledgement that we don't have something we need to get the job done. Prayer, in other words, is turning to God because God has power we don't have. Prayer, or a lack of prayer in this case, indicates whether you're relying on God or relying on self. It seems to me that the reason the disciples couldn't cast out this demon is that they had stopped trusting the power of God and they had gotten used to their success at casting out demons and had slipped into feeling that the, de- that the power to do so was theirs and not God's. The disciples had, plain and simply, been commissioned to use the same power Jesus was using for this work. It was never given to them. It was never their power. It was never a power in a special set of words, some sort of incantation. It was always God's power. And when they stopped relying on that through prayer, they stopped having the ability to cast out these demons. Perhaps it was their very success before that lulled them into thinking that they could act on their own. I think that would make great sense of Jesus' faithless generation label. And it makes sense of his claim that the lack of prayer is the reason that they'd struggle. Unbelief, fundamentally, was their problem. They didn't believe in Jesus as the only source for what they required. That's one type of unbelief exposed in this story. Unbelief as self-reliance as opposed to trusting in Jesus. In the Father, we get another type of unbelief, another manifestation of it, another source for it. In this desperate father, we get a glimpse of unbelief that's rooted in challenging circumstances. And let's try to think of this guy as somebody who's as real as any of us. Someone who actually walked this earth just like, just like any of us did, just like George Washington did. Think of this man just as, as some past historical figure that was real, that actually experienced things in the same way that we do, had the same kinds of emotions. He's a father of just one child, and we can assume that he felt the same affection for this child that any of us have towards our own children. We can assume, too, that he had the added burden of knowing that in this kind of society, your security for the future was not social security or some sort of retirement account. It was the fact that you had a son who was going to provide for you when you were too old to work. He felt the same exact desire that we do to protect, to provide, to fix what's wrong. Most of us, we struggle to put up with just a little bit of crying from our children when we don't know how to fix it. We don't know how to solve the problem that they're experiencing. This father's only child has a much more severe set of problems. Look at how he further summarizes it. He, he, he gives Jesus the original summary in verses 17 and 18. Then he goes further because the child comes up and, and the spirit throws him into this convulsion. And Jesus asks, how long has this been going on? The man says, from childhood. Just about as long as this boy has been alive, he's been struggling in this way. And not only is it taking control of his body, it seems like it's attacking him. Like it's actively trying to destroy him. He talks about that it it throws him towards fire and into water, trying to take his life. Here's a man who's what's most likely the most important thing to him in the world. And a thing that he believed had been given to him to protect is now attacked by a force that's completely outside of his control. Can you imagine? Think of this as a real person. Can you imagine what it would be like to go to bed every night under these circumstances, knowing that year after year... Night after night, then morning after morning, you wake up to the same horrible reality and you're, you're helpless to get out from under it. 
No doubt he sought all the help he could find at this point. He's clearly a motivated father. He's probably looked around for doctors who might could, could do this, any sort of holy men or special religious gurus who might could, could get this demon out of his son. He's probably tried all of his options, and now he hears that Jesus is around. And he's been hearing stories that Jesus has the ability to, to cast out demons with just a word, that no demon is a match for Jesus' power. And so he brings his son, knowing that he's been struggling with this from childhood, knowing just how big this problem is and that it hasn't been solvable by anyone else through any other means, he comes to Jesus hoping that Jesus has the answer. And yet again, it's failure. He comes to Jesus' disciples, probably stood in line. You can almost imagine him standing in line behind other people with other problems, and he's seeing their problems get solved, and, and then his son comes up, and they're helpless. His problem, in other words, was so big, and he'd suffered under it for so long, that you can understand why he addresses Jesus with a conditional. When he comes to Jesus, he's a beat-down, desperate father who's seen every would-be solution fall flat. So when when he addresses Jesus, he says, If you can, have compassion on us. Do something to save us. No one else has been able to, but maybe you can. If If you can. Have compassion on us. He doesn't have any doubt about Jesus' good intentions. He doesn't doubt his compassion. The doubt here is about Jesus' ability. He knew, perhaps with more certainty than he knew anything else in his life, he knew how severe his problem was. And with his problem so vivid, the power of Jesus to save faded in comparison. Those reports were distant. They were other people's stories. His problem was his, and it kept him from fully believing Jesus was who he hoped Jesus was. Jesus recognizes this sort of unbelief immediately. I mean, look at how he calls him out on it in verse 23. Jesus says, if you can, he knows that there's, in this statement, is, is a, a lack of belief. He knows that the question of this child's deliverance is not a matter of Jesus' ability, but of the father's faith. That's the only question. Now, in the characters of this story so far, we've got illustrations of unbelief that's pretty diverse. But the forms of unbelief, we don't even really need to go to this story to understand that truth. The fact that unbelief comes at us in different ways and from different places. We can look at our own problem, at our own experience, and see the same thing. Now, when when you think about doubt or unbelief, I'm guessing what you most easily think of is intellectual doubt. You think about the fact that sometimes we doubt because we think we need more evidence, more information to show that Jesus is who he says he is, or because the evidence that we've been given seems to have holes in it. We seem to be able to poke holes too easily. It doesn't seem like it can bear the weight that we need to put on it. We're not sure maybe about the reliability of the Bible and what it says, or of Christians that claim that these certain things have happened in them and to them. I've certainly been there with this kind of doubt. Maybe some of you have too. But that's not by any means the only form of unbelief. It's not even the most common form of unbelief. A far more common form is one that looks a lot more like this father's. The things that we fear, these negative circumstances in our life, begin to take on such a vivid appearance before our minds that that any other power to thwart them, to overcome them, seems to fade in comparison. They seem more vivid, in other words, in the promises of the gospel. 
So maybe you're experiencing the fact of job loss or the fact of an unwanted singleness or the, the fact of dissatisfaction in your life's work, whether that be at home with your children or, in, or at the office somewhere. You're experiencing something that seems much more powerful than Jesus' ability to deliver for you. Now, do you realize that any time you experience that, any time you experience fear or anxiety, what you're fundamentally experiencing is a form of unbelief that's just as real as any intellectual doubt. What you experience when you fear is an uncertainty about the promises made to you in Scripture. In that moment, in that issue, you believe that what you're facing is more powerful than Jesus is. You know the promises of the gospel. You know those beautiful passages like Romans 8, where Paul draws from the fact that that Christ has been given to us. God gave his only son, and if he gave his only son, then chances are he's going to give us anything that we need. It couldn't cost more than his son. If he's willing to give that, he's going to give you everything you need. And then he launches into that beautiful passage about the fact that there's neither height nor depth nor any other created thing that can separate you from his love. You're told, in other words, that Jesus has got you, that he's powerful enough to do whatever he intends and that he's loving enough to intend what's best for you, no matter how it might appear to you in the moment. Those are the promises you have in the gospel. When you fear, what you're doubting is that he can make good on those promises. We're living, in other words, as in that moment, as if the promises aren't true. Perhaps the most dangerous form of unbelief, though, and dangerous because it's the most difficult to recognize, is self-reliance. This is an unbelief that doesn't see the need for Jesus as a Savior. This is the unbelief we saw in the disciples. It's not that they ever doubted Jesus could deliver. They had seen him act in power time and again to deliver people from sickness and from evil spirits and from whatever else, even, even death at one point. They didn't doubt his power to deliver. In the moment, they stopped trusting his power to deliver. They stopped resting on his power to deliver. And that was a form of unbelief in them. It was a form of replacing belief in Jesus for belief in themselves and in their own ability. They'd fallen back on their own resources. That's what we do often unknown to ourselves, dangerous because it's not seen. We get so comfortable. This is the opposite from the fear, anxiety kind of unbelief. Sometimes we get so comfortable in our own skin, in our circumstances. We're so successful in work or things are going well at home. Money's not tight. Family's getting along. We're pleased with ourselves, our relationships, the way we treat others. And in those good times, we lose our sense of need for Jesus. We get apathetic. We get too self-satisfied and we slip into a default position of assuming we stand or fall, in this case we stand, on our own two feet. We're under control, we believe, in those, in those times. One of my most intense bouts with doubt came precisely when this sort of unbelief got uncovered in me. Things, there, there's a specific area of my life that was very important to me in uh, some of my work in graduate school, and I thought things were going really, really well, And then I discovered things weren't going the way that I thought they were. And the crushing blow that this dealt to me, the the huge weight of disappointment, led me into severe doubt about the reliability of Jesus and whether or not he was worth staking my life on. I think the reason that's where it took me, disappointment leading to doubt, was that it exposed the fact that I had never been resting on him to begin with. 
the, the rest that I felt, the fact that I was so happy and things seemed to be going so well, was because I was trusting in the fact that I was doing well in this area of my life that mattered so much to me. When, I, when, when that was no longer true, there was no foundation in place for me. I had suffered, in other words, from the form of unbelief that is self-reliance. The point is that no matter the source, whether you're a persistent doubter or someone who's never really consciously questioned whether Jesus is who he claims to be, the natural position of your heart is unbelief. That's where you slip, recognize it or not. And it's especially troubling in light of this passage because Jesus' response to the frail faith of this father, and that father tells him, if you can, do something for my child. His response is that anything is possible for one who believes. If you're made to recognize the fact that your belief isn't what it needs to be, then you're confronted with this statement that Jesus honors or acts in response to belief. You're left to wonder, do I believe enough? Do I have enough belief for Jesus to deliver me? What would it look like, in other words, for me to have a kind of faith that's followed by deliverance? That's the question I think that Jesus' response to this man raises for us. That was certainly the father's concern. That's where he was coming from with his famous desperate plea. So if we've seen the power of unbelief, the story turns here at this crucial moment, and we begin to see something about what it looks like to believe. We begin to see that belief has just as a pervasive a power as unbelief. What would it look like, in other words, for us to experience the sort of belief that's followed by deliverance? The insight from this story is that a decision to rest on Jesus, a decision to rest on him, not mathematical certainty, that's the faith that's followed by deliverance. Let's look first at the, at the character of belief. What does this belief, this rest on Jesus, actually look like? We see this in the response of the Father. Jesus has just said all things are possible for one who believes. He want, and then the, the Father wants this to be possible so badly that he cries out, I believe, I, I do. That's why I've come here. But it's not perfect. So help my unbelief. Fill the void that's left in the belief that I actually do have. His faith is not absolute. It's not scientific or mathematical certainty. It's a decision to rest on Jesus, to act on the belief that he does have, not be held back by the belief that he doesn't have. Obviously, he's come to Jesus because he believes Jesus has abilities that other people don't have. He's been disappointed time and again, and he's so thoroughly familiar with this problem that his confidence in Jesus couldn't be absolute at this point. But it's there. He's got belief. And he chooses to rest on Jesus and to pray for more. Even in his prayer, even in this plea to to, to help my unbelief, we see in him the response of faith. Because it's a turning to Jesus for something that that you don't have. It's to deny self-reliance. It's to admit that there's a void there, that even belief itself is outside of your power. Even in his prayer about the lack of belief, we see evidence of belief. His prayer represents the absolute despair that's necessary if we're to get God to act. It's a despair that knows that any good that's going to come can't come from us and must come from God. That's the despair that leads us to honor God as a source of deliverance that's not matched anywhere else. This belief ultimately is a lot like our belief when we decide to sit down on a chair. When you decide to sit down, 
you've not done any kind of experimentation, chances are, on the quality of the construction. You haven't done any kind of test to make sure that the wood is not rotten in the middle and it just looks good under, uh, under the, uh, with, with a veneer on the outside. You don't do that kind of thing. You, you have a regional, reasonable belief that it's there because it works, and you're just going to sit on it. You're not frozen by, the fact, by all the facts that you don't know about this chair. You act on what you do know, and you see if the chair holds you up. That's ultimately what this father That's what his faith consists of. It's a decision to act on the faith he does have, not be held back by the faith that he doesn't have. It's a decision to seek practical certainty, the certainty that comes from seeing Jesus hold him when he falls on him. That's the character of belief in this story. The results are striking. Immediately after this father's plea, Jesus doesn't say anything else to the father. He acts. He addresses the Spirit, just like he's done in many other cases. He tells him, I command you. I command you, not my disciples, not some religious guru with some magic incantation. Me, the Son of God, come here to restore what's broken. I command you, come out of him. And he does. Immediately, he's come out. The boy convulses violently, so much so that those who are watching think that he's dead. It looks, in other words, as if Jesus is lost and the evil spirit has had this last laugh. But the effects of his violence are no match for Jesus' overwhelming power to restore. And with a touch, this child is restored to health, to new and full life that's unaffected by any of those past struggles. We've seen, in other words, the results of belief that even this fragmentary, frail faith that the father had and that he clung to was enough to secure Jesus' deliverance of him in this situation. So what would it look like for you to believe in this powerful and effective way? What would it look like for you to believe? If you're struggling with doubt, if you've got philosophical hang-ups, maybe you aren't sure you can commit, maybe you're not even sure what it would look like for you to commit, to know that you've crossed the line and gotten enough information to ask Jesus to deliver you, I'd say you need to continue to investigate, continue to question. Your doubts aren't a bad thing. They can lead you to a deeper and more lasting faith. I'd say that Christianity doesn't require you to look the other way. It doesn't require you to check your mind at the door and to suspend the normal rational process that you would apply in any other area of your life. But as a fellow doubter, I'll tell you this. You can go on forever waiting on that silver bullet that's going to convince you once and for all, and you're not going to find it. It may be that the problem you've got is not that you don't have enough information, but it's the attitude of your heart towards the information that you do have. Doubt all too often is not an intellectual problem, in other words, but a spiritual problem. Perhaps you're waiting on mathematical certainty when what Christianity calls for is much more like a relationship. Let me give you an example. I don't have mathematical, laboratory-tested, scientific certainty that my wife is not a spy sent here from the KGB to collect information on our church. 
I have no evidence that, the, that, that she wasn't recruited at a young age before we met each other at 12 years old or whenever it was, and that this whole time, our whole relationship from that point has been all one big plot to secure valuable information. I can't prove that. And if I was a paranoid type and, and was concerned that that was true, there'd be nothing you could say or do mathematically or scientifically to convince me that that wasn't true. If I was locked in on that as a possibility, I'm locked in. And there's no, there's no experiment that's going to convince me otherwise. But I don't think any reasonable person would claim that the lack of that mathematical certainty would rob me from the ability to live without that kind of fear, to rest on the certainty that she is who she claims to be, to rest on the experiences that I've had with her over the many years of our relationship and trust that those represent who she really is and what she's got to offer. That's not checking your mind at the door. It's relying on the kind of knowledge that's appropriate for that kind of relationship. Mathematics don't have any role in that relationship. And it's, it's similar with Christianity. It's not that evidence can't ever come into it. I think it's very valuable to explore the world God's made and look for traces of him there. I think that philosophy and logic and rationality can help us understand the fact that Christianity explains the world better than other options. But ultimately, that's not going to get us where a lot of us want to get with a kind of undoubtable certainty. I'm really suggesting that you don't demand of Christianity, of your relationship with a God who is living and active, any more than you would demand of your relationship with your wife. It may be that what you need, if you're struggling with doubt, is you need to act. What faith would look like for you is a decision to rest on Jesus, to live in the hope that he is who he says he is, that what he says is true, and to live as if it's true. You act like this father and you pray for more faith. You commit like this father. You sit down on the chair and you pray for more faith. The encouragement for you in this story is that this is the kind of faith that Jesus honors. Jesus isn't waiting for you to prove your way to him before he will meet you. Perhaps your struggle, though, is more about assurance. You've been a believer a while. Do you see how powerful your sin is in your life that it continues to hold you back? And you wonder whether the gospel is really at work in you at all. You see the New Testament talk about the fact that the Spirit is given to those who believe and that his work is to form them into beings that look a whole lot more like Jesus. And yet you recognize in your own experience that you seem like you're not getting anywhere. Sometimes you can't see the progress that's been made. And that may lead you to doubt whether the gospel is powerful or whether you've experienced it or or not personally. Maybe that's where you are. Whatever active faith you have is so weak that you wonder if it's there. If so, you may see Jesus' claim to this father, his response to this father, that anything is possible for one who believes, and that's not encouraging to you at all. That's terrifying to you because what you're worried about is not whether Jesus is powerful, but whether or not you've got enough faith. And now Jesus seems to throw you back on on your faith and put it in your court that you've got to have enough. You've got to work work up, gin up enough confidence in him for him to deliver you. Maybe that's your concern. And there are certainly currents in American Christianity today that would tell you that that's how you should feel. There are... There are currents that make a lot more sense in a society where we're relatively comfortable, where, where success is sometimes easy to come by, and, and we're not, we, don't, we don't suffer a whole lot compared to other parts of the world. There's, there's a current in Christianity here that makes sense in that environment and tells you that all you've got to do is ask, and ask with enough perfect faith, and God will give you what you ask for. He'll expand your territory. If you name it, you can claim it, right? But that puts the burden back on you. 
it leaves you with anxiety about whether or not you've ever believed well enough. And maybe you see in Jesus' response to his father, that's the way, that that current is, is true, that it's accurate. But then look more closely at what Jesus' exchange with this father leads to. Does this father look like he's naming and claiming anything? This guy knows deeply that his faith is incomplete. He cries out to God from a position of brokenness and despair, not knowing ultimately what to believe. But he's got enough belief in Jesus. He's got enough belief to turn to him and not to someone else that Jesus delivers him. We are not promised that Jesus is always going to physically deliver, just like he does here. Remember that he's just told his disciples one chapter earlier that they were going to live a life of suffering if they wanted to follow him. It is not Christianity in the mouth of Jesus is not a promise that things are always going to go well with you. What he promises is that he's powerful enough to do what's best for you and loving enough to make sure that's what he uses his power for. He's, his promise is that he's worth staking your life on. That's what this father found to be true. His faith was fragmentary. It was weak at best, but it was rest on Jesus. And Jesus responded with compassion. If you're recognized, if, if, you're, if this is where you are, I want to recommend a book to you that has been a tremendous help to me over the years as I've struggled for assurance and, and with doubt. It's a book that's actually several hundred years old now. It was written by a pastor in England named Richard Sibbs. And it's a book called The Bruised Reed. Sibbs was a part of a movement that's known as the Puritan movement. And the Puritans were really, really zealous about a lot of things, and particularly they were zealous about holiness. Their theological work is fantastic. It's influenced me dramatically in the way that I understand the Bible. And their, their encouragement to, to fight sin and live for holiness is a good one. It's a solid one. But one of the byproducts of it for many people in their experience was that they struggled to know whether or not they were good enough to, to, to believe that they had experienced the gospel. The Puritans taught, in other words, that, that if you understood the gospel and believed it, if you truly rested on it, that, that it was going to transform you. It was going to lead to holiness, and that's why it was so important to seek holiness. But the byproduct of that for some people was that they were concerned, they were, they were fixated on whether or not they had enough holiness to believe that they had fully recognized and, and encountered Jesus. Is there enough evidence in my life that, that I know him? Sibs wrote in that context, and he wrote to encourage people who struggled with their assurance, with the fact that, that using biblical imagery, Jesus will not break off a reed that's bruised. He will cultivate it. He will heal it. He will not snuff out the smoking flax, another image that comes up in this book over and over again. It's, it's a reminder that Jesus' compassion meets you even in your own weakness. If this is where you are, the book is going to be, it would be tremendously encouraging to you. Come see me after the service. I'd love to give you a copy of it. Bottom line, in Sib's book and in this passage, is that fragmentary faith that truly rests on Jesus is still the kind of faith that Jesus honors. If you're recognizing the weakness of your faith compared to the power of your sin, don't be driven to despair as if that means Jesus won't accept you. 
But let that recognition, the power of your sin, drive you back to the cross, to the grace that's extended to you there and every day. Don't fixate so much on whether or not you ever really came to know Jesus, but know him now, know him today. That's all that really matters. Mark is building ultimately for a plea for faith in Jesus as sacrifice that makes us right with God when we've got nothing to bring to the table but our own sin. In the moment then, focus not on the weakness of your faith, but on the strength and the powerful love of the person that your faith rests on. That's what matters more. The object of your faith, not the strength of your faith. What matters is the strength of the limb. If you're falling, what matters is the strength of the limb that you grab onto, not first and foremost the amount of strength with which you hold it. That kind of faith is a faith that honors God as the one who's mighty to save when we're helpless, and his compassion will not fail you. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see the glory of the gospel as something that's worth staking our life on. We know that that's hard for us, especially in the circumstances of life when they become challenging. They seem so much more real than the promises you've made to us. So we ask for a supernatural work to open our eyes, to give us hearts to respond to you in faith. We thank you for telling us what you require from us and for giving us the ability to fulfill it. We pray that you would do that even now this morning for your name's sake. We pray in the name of your son. Amen.